so good to be together on this cold, nearly winter's morning. If you're new and visiting us, we're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke, one of the biographies of Jesus' life, and we're continuing on. This morning, we return to John the Baptist, now as an adult. We won't touch all of the passage, it's a long passage, but if you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 20, and then invite the Lord to help us. This is the living word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region about the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ... John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn 
with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as we come to a passage of your word that is difficult in our cultural context to hear, we pray against any spirit of worldliness that might lead us to not pay careful attention to what you intend to say to your people this morning. Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray, come in our midst, soften our hearts to hear you speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Born on the 26th of March, 1946, and passing away from cancer on the 19th of May, 2020, at the age of 74 years of age. Ravi Zacharias was an Indian-born Canadian-American apologist who was involved in Christian apologetics for a period spanning more than 40 years. Ravi was the author of more than 30 books, the founder of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, the host of several radio programs and was a lifelong minister of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. But all the while, he was living a double life. His outward veneer of success in Christian ministry concealed a deep inward depravity. And he took it all to his deathbed with no known evidence of repentance. An investigation after his death found he had used his reputation as an internationally renowned Christian apologist to abuse massage therapists in the USA and overseas for more than 10 years. At his funeral, Ravi was praised for his commitment to the truth, his faithful witness, his personal integrity. But this independent report uncovered behind the scenes was a very different man, a man who had abused numerous women and manipulated those around him to turn a blind eye. You see, friends, it's possible to have your life completely together on the outside, to even look like a shining example of Christian faithfulness, and yet to be inwardly filled with corruption. In the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, it's possible to be a Christian in name only. It's possible to be a Christian 
merely through lip service. To call on the name of Jesus, but still be living contrary to his ways. In the words of Jesus, to be a worker of lawlessness. The result is dying and facing the Lord and being told, I have no idea who you are. Put another way, it's possible to say all the right things, but not be ready to meet the Lord. Ravi Zacharias is, I put to you, a sobering example, especially for me as a pastor, a sobering example of one who possibly was not ready to meet the Lord. And so my question as we begin this morning for us to consider church is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet the Lord? You see, in our passage today, we're introduced to John the Baptist as an adult who had a ministry that's goal was to prepare people to meet the coming king. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, Make Way for the King. And I have three simple points that come from the text. Uh, I've managed to make them all start with the same letter. That's a good thing, apparently. Uh, if you're taking notes, the messenger, the message, and the master. But if there's one thing that our passage teaches us this morning that we're going to be nailing on and hammering on all this morning together in our time, it's this. That humble repentance is the way to prepare for the coming king. It's humble repentance. John the Baptist wants us to see is the way to prepare for the coming of this king. Let's begin with point number one, the messenger. Just by way of context, Luke is different from any of the other gospels in that he begins his account of Jesus' life with what is almost, by modern standards, a book forward, uh, outlining his method and his purpose. He has, according to Luke, collected eyewitness testimonies and arranged them in an orderly fashion to give us, that is the reader, certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the events surrounding the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, the angelic announcements, the miraculous circumstances, the many figures paying tribute. And last week, we caught a glimpse of the childhood of Jesus, how he's already the perfect mediator. He's he's the incarnated Lord. He's got this perfect union with his father, and he lived this life of perfect submission. And now Luke pivots to reintroduce the main story, the main narrative, with a return to the ministry of the now adult John the Baptist. Approximately 18 years have passed since our passage last week. And with the passing of so much time and the start of the main story of the gospel, Luke wants us to know exactly the circumstances into which Jesus and John began their ministry. Why don't you read again with me, chapter 3, verse 1. Luke writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Luke lists no less than seven historical figures involved in ruling Judea around the time of Jesus and John's ministry. 
These are complicated and dark times. Tiberius Caesar was the stepson of Augustus, and his reign was marked by suspicion, paranoia, and intolerance of foreign religions. In fact, some 10 years earlier from our passage, he had expelled all Jews from Rome in 19 AD. Some, uh, our passage is titled as the 15th year of his reign, which marks it as the year roughly 29 or 20, uh, 28 or 29 AD. Some 30 years earlier in 4 BC, Herod the Great had died. He had ruled on behalf of Rome. He was the one from whom Joseph and Mary had fled. And yet it was deemed that none of his sons were competent to rule. And so they divided his kingdom among all three of them into many kingdoms. Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip, each having a tetrarchy, a mini kingdom to rule instead of the one. Archelaus had been ruling around Jerusalem and he was so incompetent that the locals petitioned and he was removed and replaced with a Roman prefect. One of these prefects was Pontius Pilate, who would rule for 10 years from 26 to 36 AD. Luke mentions two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, which seems odd. Shouldn't there only be one high priest? Well, the actual high priest at the time of our passage was Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. These men were Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were from among the wealthy elite, perhaps equivalent of the modern-day liberal Christians who don't believe in the Bible. Annas had overseen a dynasty of high priests in Jerusalem. He was hugely influential. Aside from Caiaphas, who's his son-in-law, no short of five of his sons would rule as high priest in Jerusalem during his lifespan. And so Annas is included because he's regarded as the real high priest in many ways. You see, Luke wants you to see that this is an incredibly dark period of history. There's an incredibly complicated political system. They are ruled by a foreign power and a largely secular elitist priesthood. And into this setting, we read the following. Verse 2b. The word of God came to John the, Baptist, uh, John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, in language reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, God speaks to John. It's the first occasion that God has spoken in the manner of a prophet since Malachi, more than 400 years of silence. And notice where God speaks to him. It's not in the luxury of Rome. It's not in the heights of Jerusalem. It's not in the palace of a ruler like Herod or in the temple. It's in the wilderness. It's in the middle of nowhere. More Matthew tells us that John is a really unusual character. This guy dressed in camel fur and ate insects and honey. And he was controversial. He had a very open and direct style of preaching. You see, John was an itinerant preacher. He encouraged people to return to God, to repent, symbolically baptizing them. John's basic message was that God is sending the Messiah. You need to repent and return to God to be ready for when he comes. And his baptism was different from Christian baptism. John's baptism was about preparation. It was about a washing of self to be ready for the Messiah. 
And we're going to hear more about that later. But notice where John conducts his ministry. It's hugely significant. It's the region around the Jordan. You know, in the book of Genesis, we learn this region was the region given to Lot. This was the former site of Sodom. This is a region symbolic of corruption and the rebellion of the past. Here's the point. In the midst of a dark period of history, in a place symbolic of Israel's dark past, God sends his word once more. He sends out his messenger, the prophet John, to proclaim a message of repentance. Now, surely there's some encouragement here as we consider the darkness around us in 2021, this sense of rising animosity to Christianity, the dwindling numbers of professing Christians in the West. Our situation in many ways is no different to that faced by John and Jesus. You know, Luke sees John's ministry as fulfilling a prophecy from 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through to 5, which we read in verses 4 through to 6. It says the following, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the ways of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know, the context of this passage from the Old Testament that Luke is quoting is Israel's exile to Babylon. Israel had turned their backs on God. And God had promised to raise up a pagan nation to punish them in response and to take them away from their home country. And in this passage, God himself is saying that after their exile in Babylon, he himself will come and comfort them. God is coming, and there will be a herald to prepare his path. Yahweh's path will be prepared like a highway. Valleys will be filled in, mountains will be lowered, bends will be straightened, rough patches will be smoothed out. But in Isaiah and in our passage, this highway is highly symbolic. God is not talking about coming on a physical highway. He's not talking about building like a new Super M1 where Jesus comes flying down the road driving a brand new soft top Mercedes. He's talking about people's hearts. The restoring of the landscape symbolizes personal repentance and social reform. The valleys, the downcast and low are lifted up. The mountains in chapter 2 verse 14 of Isaiah symbolize people in high places, the arrogant and the proud. They will be literally in this passage humbled. The crooked, the tax collectors and sinners straightened. And that's what Luke wants us to see. John the Baptist is the messenger promised in Isaiah 40, the one who would prepare the way from the coming king. But how would he prepare a highway for the king? By proclaiming a message that would prepare people's hearts. And that's point number one. The messenger. But not just point number one, the messenger. Point number two, the message. See, the other Gospels tell us that John's preaching began to gather huge notoriety. And people began to come out into the wilderness from the cities and countryside to listen to him and to be baptized 
John, as the Lord's chosen messenger, was tasked with preparing the hearts for the coming Messiah, the coming of Yahweh himself. In this section, we hear the message of his preparation. He's calling people to humble repentance. And so Luke allows us to listen into John's preaching as he addresses three different groups of people. And the first group is the crowd in general. Read with me these words of chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is so incredibly direct in his preaching. You brood of vipers, you poisonous snakes, he says. The image he has in mind is of snakes fleeing from a burning bush or burning bushes where they would slither out from underneath to escape the fire. John is saying, you are here to escape judgment. You are here to save your own skin. But you have no desire to stop being snakes. You have no desire whatsoever to change. According to Matthew, John had the religious leaders in mind, the Pharisees and Sadducees. But Luke wants you to see that it is a warning relevant for all question I've been thinking about this week as I've been preparing this message is, how would, I, how would we respond? How would I respond if John preached this message to us on Sunday? You bunch of snakes, you're just here on Sunday because you think it will save you, but you don't want to change. It's pretty strong language, but with a good purpose, because this is God's divinely inspired word to us, church. Read on with me, verses 8 and 9. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, bear good fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, fruit in the Bible is a metaphor for the result of a life, the result of which can be good or the result of which can be bad. And John uses the plural here, fruits, which implies not just one fruit, but multiple occasions of bearing good fruit. In verse 9, he says, good fruit. That is, fruit like that of the Holy Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You see, true repentance reveals itself in genuine change in a person's life. True repentance bears fruit. Now, a culture that puts our feelings at the center of everything... Repentance has come to mean feeling sorry for something wrong that was done. Repentance can often simply be another way of saying, I feel bad or I feel guilty. But simply feeling bad can often be merely sorrow for what the sin has cost me personally, which can be another expression of selfishness and not necessarily true repentance at all. You see, true repentance 
is a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. It owns responsibility for the wrong that was done without reservation. It accepts the consequences. It does not seek to minimize or justify what was done. You sorrow first and foremost, not for myself, but how my sin has grieved God Almighty. And secondary, sorrow for what was done to others. You see, true repentance isn't being about being controlled or manipulated by the church or society. And it's definitely not about oppression of your identity. It's about relationship with God. See, Christian repentance isn't about earning forgiveness. It's about turning towards God in love. It's about expressing a desire to walk closely with him and not to grieve him anymore. And John is saying for repentance to be true, it must lead to good fruit. There must be change. An illustration that I think uh, is so helpful that Tim Keller makes is to imagine that a very close friend of yours was killed by way of murder. Say, someone you really love and really hold dearly, like a parent or a spouse or a very close friend. And imagine that friend was murdered by a crossbow and an arrow pierced their heart and killed them. Imagine after the trial has been completed and the perpetrator has been put in jail, that someone came up to you with the arrow that killed your friend and said, here you go. I thought you might like it to keep with you always as a remembrance of that friend that perished. What would you say? You'd say, what? I don't want anything to do with that thing that killed my friend. Get rid of it. I don't want to see that. I don't want to carry that around with me. And here's the point Tim Keller makes. Our sins nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. They were the cause behind his crucifixion. And when we continue to live with our sins, it's like carrying the nails of Jesus around in our pockets. Now, I'm not saying that the Christian life isn't filled with struggle and habitual sins. It is. But the heart of a genuine follower says, amidst the struggle, away from me. And it manifests itself in a genuine turning away from the sin. Get rid of it from my life. What John is saying isn't harsh. What John is saying isn't judgmental. It's not a scare tactic. It's a loving warning that true repentance is required to escape God's judgment. You see, God is our maker. And we were made by him with divine purpose. We were made to enjoy relationship with him. And since God is our maker, he owns us and he owes nothing to us at all. We owe our lives to him. He owes us nothing in return. He is like a gardener in the midst of his garden and he's coming to judge. He's got his axe out. It's lying in the garden near the diseased trees and he is ready to chop them down. But it's just like he's run off momentarily to get something. And John is saying, without genuine good fruit, without a changed life, That tree is getting chopped down. 
See, the right application of John's sermon is to pause and examine our hearts. If John's message was designed to prepare people to meet the Lord Jesus, the right question to ask is, am I ready to meet him? Am I genuinely repentant? Now, if you're here today and you wouldn't normally describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, this is the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Am I ready to meet Jesus? You see, there is one true God who made the world and everything in it. And we turned our backs on him. The whole orientation of our lives is wrong. It's not upward and outward towards others, it's inward. And the result is God is coming to judge us. The axe is laying at the foot of your tree. But the reason the axe is yet to fall is because he's waiting for you. You see, John preached repentance, but he didn't know how the other necessary part would be possible, and that is forgiveness. You see, repentance, turning your back to God, prepares you for forgiveness. Trusting in Jesus. You see, Jesus was born to redo life for you. He came and he lived the perfect life that you have failed to live and he died in your place. He took upon himself your punishment. The axe fell upon him and not upon you. And the gift of his life and the gift of his death on your behalf comes if you simply trust him. And if you trust in him, you will be ready to face the Lord. But if you're here today and you've already put your trust in Christ... This is also a relevant question. Am I walking in repentance? You know, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, his very first thesis said the following. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And by this, Martin Luther means that repentance is the way in which we grow throughout our Christian life and prepare to meet the Lord Jesus. In the words of Jesus himself from our gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why does Jesus say daily? Well, it's because we constantly lose sight of what he's calling us to do. We're where he's calling us to go, who he's calling us to be. We need daily repentance. The question I want us to consider this morning, church, if, if, you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, it's how are you going in maintaining a heart of repentance towards our Lord? You know, John doesn't simply call people to repentance in preparation for the coming of Jesus with a symbolic baptism saying, I'm ready for him. He also pauses to highlight several barriers that can prevent a person from properly repenting that can lead them into a false assurance even of their salvation, to lead them to believe that repentance for them is not even required. And here are the ones he lists. Barriers like a trust in outward signs. You see, the crowds, they thought that they could receive John's baptism and be safe. Many of these folks were clearly deeply religious, and so they thought, I'm sweet. I perform all the sacrifices, I go to the temple and the synagogue, Now I'll be dunked by John. Sorted. And John says, you're like snakes fleeing from a flame. You have no desire whatsoever to change. And maybe that's you. 
Maybe you've been baptized in the church or weekly attend church or Bible study. You think, I'm in, I'm safe because of the signs. Well, my friends, it's false assurance. The other obstacle John highlights is trust in religious heritage or pedigree. They thought that being born into the people of Israel, the people of God, would make them safe. God made promises to Abraham. God needs to us to fulfill those promises, they thought. And John says, wrong. He could use stones if he wanted to. And maybe that's you. Maybe you quietly think to yourself, I was born Christian. I grew up going to church. I grew up going to the right church, an evangelical church. I was raised to know the Bible. I'm safe. My friends, that is false assurance. The third obstacle that John the Baptist raises isn't quite as obvious as the others. It comes out in the advice he gives to every single group that comes to him on what true repentance ought to look like. Three different groups come to John seeking advice, seeking counsel on how they should repent. And in every case, he gives nearly the same advice. And that is because the third barrier is trust in money and possessions. First of all, the crowds come to John asking, well, what should we do? And he says the following in verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. John says, share what you have with others. Don't hoard your possessions, but freely give them. Next, the tax collectors come to him, those who are hated as working for Rome, as stealing from their own people. And John says the following to them in verse 13. Collect no more than you are authorized to do so. Don't rip people off and take more money for yourself than you should, says John. Next, the soldiers come to him, likely Jewish soldiers who were working for Herod Antipas. And John says the following to them in verse 14. The soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Don't shake people down, says John. Don't threaten them with violence for money. Don't blackmail them, making up lies to get money, but be content with what you have. This was radical. Soldiers earned next to nothing in Jesus' day. In all three cases, to three different groups that come to John asking for advice about how they should repent. In every case, he speaks to their attitude towards money and towards possessions. Don't be stingy with what you have. Don't steal and don't extort. All three groups tempted to trust their possessions and not God by hoarding, by stealing, by extorting instead of loving their neighbors as themselves. You see, trust in material possessions creates a massive obstacle to genuine repentance because it makes you feel like you don't need God. It makes you feel like God is irrelevant. It inflates your own sense of your own power. It inflates the sense you have of your own significance. And it relativizes your failings. You know what? I might have failed in X, Y, Z, but look what I've achieved. You see, if trust in money and possessions was a challenge to this largely impoverished crowd, it's definitely true of us in 21st century Warunga. You know, we are one of the wealthiest parts of the wealthiest cities in the wealthiest country and the wealthiest generation in history. 
Trust in money is a huge barrier to faith and a life of repentance. Here's a question, a difficult question I've been thinking about this week. I want to share with us. My question is this. What does the way I give say about the state of my heart towards God? Is it soft and penitent? Or are there signs of calcification? See, John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And he did this by preaching a message that would prepare people's hearts to receive him. And that message was simple. Repent to prepare for the king. But here's perhaps an even bigger question. How does a tree that is bearing bad fruit change to be a tree that is bearing good fruit? Or, taking another expression from the passage, how can a snake change into a less sinister animal like a lamb or maybe a person? Well, trying hard to cut it? Being more disciplined? Maybe by sheer determination or willpower? You see, self-transformation of that degree isn't just hard, it's impossible. And to find out how we can achieve true repentance, we come to our final point, point number three, not just the messenger, not just the message, but point number three, our final point, the master. Why don't you read with me verse 15. It says the following. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You know, there's this expectation that the Messiah, the one to come, the king coming, would lead this national revival back to faithfulness towards God. And so naturally the question is being asked, maybe this guy John, maybe this is the guy, maybe it's him. And we read on, John answers them in verse 16. He says the following. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals... I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's humility is amazing. He knows his place. He's far inferior to this coming king. He effectively says, guys, I'm just splashing a bit of water on you. My baptism about whether you've turned your back to God or turned back to God and prepared your heart for the coming king, that's what my baptism was all about. This guy, the strap of his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. You know, removing the shoes uh, off the feet of a person was considered a job that was too lowly for a Hebrew slave. John is saying a job that is too lowly for a Hebrew slave is too noble a task for me to do for this king. John is effectively saying, I'm as the lowliest of people relative to this coming Messiah. Even more than this, his baptism is far greater than my baptism, John is saying. At the end of verse 16, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, this word to baptize means to immerse someone, to put them in or underwater. And in the baptism of John, he was performing that immersion with actual water. That's what he did. He was baptizing people in the Jordan. John is saying The coming king will immerse you, not with water, but with the Spirit of God himself. 
He will give you such a measure, such a taste of God's spirit, a measure so wonderful, it will be like being completely immersed in it. You know, the Apostle Paul goes to explain what John is talking about here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He writes the following. He says, For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus is to receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this baptism results in a complete transformation of you. The inner you starts changing and developing and becomes more like the one who dwells within. He also describes it like a baptism of fire, where the fire comes and the impurities, the wrong desires that you have are burnt away and replaced. You see, Christian repentance isn't about selfishly trying to earn God's favor or painfully stripping your life of good things. It's actually filled with joy as the Spirit of God changes who you are. As you begin aligning yourself with your new desires to love and please and serve God. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, it's like you're a new creation. You know, you might be here struggling with sin. Repeated failures. But if you've received Christ Jesus, under the struggle will be a heart that loves the Lord Jesus and desires to please him. More, you're not alone in your struggle. The Lord Jesus, this great master, will finish in your life what he has began. But this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire also contains within it a warning. You see, whether this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is good or bad depends on a person's response. Read with me again, verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, John is using a farming metaphor to describe how the Lord Jesus will one day judge the world. You know, before machinery, when grain was harvested, it was beaten or threshed to separate the wheat from its inedible outer covering, the chaff. Then this wheat and chaff mix would be thrown into the air for the wind to blow away the lighter chaff, the outer covering, and for the wheat itself to fall onto the floor beneath. In a similar way, John is saying there will be a final judgment when this coming king will judge between two types of people. Those that wish to be judged by their own merits and those who trust in the merit of Christ. See, this baptism of Holy Spirit and fire stands as a warning to anyone who's not placed their trust in the Master, in the Lord Jesus, in the Christ. The fire of eternal punishment awaits. Well, in closing, in so many ways, appearances can be deceiving. Regardless of our personal history or current walk with the Lord, we would be foolish not to be sobered by the plight of Ravi Zacharias. I just want to close by way of addressing two different types of people here with us this morning. 
You know, if you're here and you haven't truly repented of your sins, an examination of yourself finds no evidence of fruits. No love for the Lord Jesus, no desire to please him. Encouragement to you is, don't delay. Revelation chapter 3, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come and dine with him. The Lord Jesus stands at the doorway of your heart and he knocks. All you have to do is invite him in. If you're here today and you do have a genuine trust in Christ, but perhaps a life of repentance has fallen wayside, it's not something you've been thinking about. Make some time and do business with God. Invite him in. Pray a simple prayer like from the end of Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart and see. See if there be any way undesirable to you. You know, in verse 18, Luke writes the following. He says, so with many other exhortations, he, that's John, preached good news to the people. And isn't that true of this message today as well? Just as John was said to preach good news, so too our passage is filled with good news. God sent his messenger, John the Baptist, into a dark period of world history with a message to prepare their hearts for the coming of King Jesus. And the message was simple, repent, turn back to God in preparation for him. Repentance is a gift of grace. But though the level of transformation we need to truly bear good fruit is beyond us, this King Jesus comes with a baptism that will transform us from the inside out. Friends, I hope you've seen that humble repentance is the way to prepare for the coming of the King. Would you join me in praying as we now close? Look, God, we want to thank you this morning so much for the gift of your word. Thank you so much that you sent the word incarnate in our Lord Jesus to come and prepare a way for us to turn back to you. And Lord, this morning as we read a topic so difficult, so abrasive to people in our culture, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us. Soften our hearts that are naturally inclined to push away from repentance and draw them more into you. Help us to see, Lord, that repentance is is not something to despise. It's not something to be nervous about. It's a gift of grace to us and of your love. Help us to see that your plans for us are much better than anything the world has to offer and that to walk with you and to turn to you is a gift that is filled with joy, filled with grace, filled with much, much mercy. Lord God, help us in and through a life of repentance to enjoy you all the more as the day when you return draws near. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.